Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be with us as we open up your word this morning, that you will guide and direct in all that's done. In your name we pray, amen. You know, if you go back to 1950, the average home size, do you want to guess the square footage average in America? 983 square feet. Average home in 1950 with an average of 3.37 people living in it. How you get to 3 or 0.37, you know, that's just a mathematical thing you understand, but that was the idea. By 2009, the average square home, and you look at this picture, you know, the one-car garage, a nice picture window, a covered front door, there's even a fence, and it's a paved, I mean, this is incredible, right? And you see the couple on the front lawn, they're just saying, oh, honey, this is it. We want this one. By the time you get to 2009, the average home size was 2,700 square feet. Now I realize this one's a little bit bigger than that. And the average occupancy in a home was 2.57 occupants. So in 59 years, the average American home grew 175% in size, 175%, while the average family shrunk by 24%. I remember being in high school, and my Bible teacher said, yeah, we live on that little house just down the street. It used to be owned by a very wealthy doctor and his family. You know, he talked about how it had running water and how it had a bathroom and how it had all these things. Yet that's not the standard anymore, is it? I tell you, you look at homes today and wow, beautiful. So how did we come to the point where we're expecting so much more now for our homes? That's a little bit of the question I want to ask. One comedian weighed in on this. Sometimes comedians like to make jokes with uh, where we are in society, and he began by asking this question. He said, do you have a place to put your stuff? Some say the whole meaning of life is simply trying to find the right place to put all your stuff. Here's all our house is, right? A place to put your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. Your house is a pile of stuff with a cover on it. In fact, it's a place to keep your stuff while you go out to get more stuff. When you fly in an airplane, you see everyone's neat piles of stuff. And when you leave your house, you lock up your stuff. You don't want anybody else taking your stuff because they always take the good stuff. Sometimes we have to move and get a bigger house. Why? Well, because we have too much stuff. Sometimes we have so much stuff we have to put it in storage. And we pay money each month because we can't part with our stuff. Other times we move in to a new place with all of our stuff and the house is still empty. Aha! Then what do you have to do? Go buy more stuff. We have to fill up this house. We have this whole room with nothing in it. That can't be. And so we go get more stuff. You get the idea. So today I want to talk a little bit more about stuff. Your stuff? My stuff? Is it wrong to have stuff? Where should we put our stuff? 
we've been talking in our series about sacrifice. And we've gone through several sermons now. First, it was the character of sacrifice. Abraham, willing to put all on the altar to give what was dearest and nearest to him and even his future on the line. We talked about the sacrifice of relationships, how we must be willing to put God above father and mother and sister and brother and how challenging that can be. We talked about physical sacrifice. Paul and Silas in a dungeon, suffering, having been beaten and bruised and bleeding in the inner prison. Yet they're found singing and praying and trusting God. Praising the Lord for being able to be willing to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. We looked at the sacrifice of the Son, how Jesus himself gave all for you and for me. He emptied himself, and how that was such a costly and expensive gift, and how to throw that gift away would be disrespectful, throw that life away that he gives us would be disrespectful to the gift. We looked at the sacrifice of self-reliance last week, how the widow gave her two mites, all that she had, not knowing how she would meet her own needs, but she trusted in God. And today I want to look at the sacrifice of means and pleasures. Yeah, money. More than 2,000 references in money in the Bible. And in fact, two-thirds of Jesus' parables dealt with money and how to manage your money. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about that idea of money because where we invest, where we spend our money, that is where our interest lies. And if you don't have an interest, put some money there, and I promise you, you will. Never invested in a company before, you invest in it, all of a sudden you're watching all the time what's happening to that company. Never invested in a mission before, but all of a sudden you give to Maranatha, and now you're really wanting to see what's Maranatha doing. Wherever you invest your money, some of you may have gotten a, a car that was new to you, a new brand, a new style, a new kind. You didn't think there were any on the road. You were going to be an original. And then after you bought that car, everybody else has the exact same one. Because your heart follows, your attention follows where your money goes. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to begin in verse 24. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And there we read, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth, or money. You have to choose. You can't serve both. One has to have priority in your life. Verse 24, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, or what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, neither gather in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? 
Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And here's the verse we've already looked at, but seek first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Those with plenty, do you suppose, or those with little? I believe Jesus is talking primarily to those that don't have a lot. Because over and over again, we have this idea that they are worrying, they're uptight, they're anxious. How are their needs going to be met? And if we jump back to verse 19, he has other thoughts regarding money in this same chapter to this same group. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there it is, there your heart will be also. And my phone likes to go to sleep. I've got to go faster, see? Let's go to another verse. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, the story of the rich young ruler. I suppose we could just call him Rich. Short for Richard, maybe. But here we're in Matthew now, verse 19. Sorry, chapter 19, verse 16. And here we have a different audience. Not those that are, are really wondering how they're going to get by, but there's somebody here that certainly is getting by quite well. And what is the advice to this man? We're in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And we read, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now some people suggest we call people like this young man a dink. Or dinks. Stands for dual income, no kids. He's a, this is a business transaction. He says, name the price and I will give it. Tell me what needs to be done. We'll draw it up and it will be a done deal. Verse 17, so he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He's saying, good teacher, wise teacher, investor, if you will. And Jesus wants to know, do you just want financial advice or do you consider me as the son of God? Because there's a difference. 
If this is just financial advice in a secular way, it's very different than if it's the Son of God saying, I own everything. And you are simply my managers, and here's how I want you to do it. It makes a big difference. But he says, but I want you to enter, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And so Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the first table of the law is out altogether. It's not even mentioned. No other gods before me, taking his name in vain, images, the Sabbath is not there. And he goes, six, seven, eight, nine, five, instead of going to ten, as we would assume, which is thou shalt not covet, which is probably what rich needs. And so there's this obvious thing, but Jesus doesn't want to name it. But he wants him to keep thinking, to keep asking, to keep pursuing. Now let's pause right there and think about this. There are times that people are living in sin, in a bold sin, in something you know is wrong. Which approach do you suppose works better with that individual? One option would be to go to that person and say, don't you know what you're doing is wrong? It's a sin. You're going to go to hell. The Bible says right here and here and here and here. Stop it. It's one option. Or you could say, you know, it's come to my attention that there's this issue in your life with such and such. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it's, been, it's something I've been struggling with. How do you think God feels about that? Well, I don't think he likes it. What do you think God wants you to do about it? Well, I think I need to quit. I need to cut it out. How can I help you with that? Do you see the difference? Ron Halverson used to use those tricks. So Jesus is using a different method. He's not just going straight to the jugular, if you will. He could have told the truth, and we could even use that as our excuse. Well, they asked for my opinion, and I just told the truth. I blasted them with the truth. Jesus, what must I do to be saved? I'm so glad you asked, Rich. For one, you're prideful. As the youngest president of the company, you're obnoxious, you're arrogant, you're rude. Well, it's true. He's rude. You have an insatiable desire for stuff. You always want more money instead of God. You're drunk. You're intoxicated with the cares of this life. Glad you asked. No, Jesus didn't do that. Rather, he was trying to get him to think. He was seeking after his soul. And he is thinking. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Think, 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 think. You got it. Think, think, think. What do I still lack, he says. And we read about it here. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect... Go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you, will be, and you will have treasure. There's the same line, isn't it? Treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Same counsel. 
given to the poor and given to the rich. And sometimes we hear, oh, they're going to talk about money. Good, go after the rich. Get their money. We don't have any money. Not true. Everybody has money. And the counsel is the same to the rich man and to the poor people. Store up your treasure, not here, but in heaven. Same counsel. To the poor, Jesus says, I will give all that you need. And to the rich, Jesus says, I will give just what you need. Because I can be pining away after money I don't have as a poor person, or I can be pining away for more as a rich person. It really doesn't matter so much. God's comments, I believe, about money has very little to do with the amount or the 401k or the hedge funds or the annuities. God is not concerned with capital. He's concerned with character. And there's a difference. I believe our life on this earth is a dot on the line of eternity. And if you imagine this line that goes on all the way down the center aisle, out the back doors, up the steps, all the way across the parking lot, but that wouldn't be far enough. We go all the way across North Carolina, we get to the coast, all the way across the ocean. We could circle the globe, wouldn't be long enough. This is eternity, so maybe we should go straight up and we'll go past, you know, Mars or Saturn or any of these, all the way past Pluto, the next galaxy. It's not long enough. This line goes for eternity and your life is a dot. And financially, over and over and over again, Jesus says, you're focused on the dot instead of the line. Earthly investments are the dot. Heavenly treasure is the line. Invest in people, invest in ministry, invest in spreading the gospel and the good news. That is storing heavenly treasure. Don't focus on the dot, but the line. Both the poor and the rich young ruler have the same problem. They're focused on the dot. Here's a verse we know well, Philippians 4, verse 12. And I love what Paul has to say here. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Anybody here in need? You know, you don't want to raise your hand, but I know you're in need. Anybody here have plenty? You don't want to raise your hand either, but I know there's people here that have plenty. Paul says, I know what it's like to be in both camps. And I have learned the secret. Does anybody here like secrets? Paul says, I've learned the secret. I know what it's like to have nothing. I know what it's like to have everything. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Contentment. If God's given me very little, be content. If God's given me much, be content. And there's people in both camps that aren't content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, the secret is to be content. And then Philippians 4, 19. My God will meet all your needs according to his riches or according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To be content, to allow him to supply all our needs. The problem is we've forgotten how to be content. We're not content with our cars or our homes, our jobs. We're not content with our health care plan. We're certainly not content with our uh, voting options. We're not content with our bank accounts. Did you know that financial stress is the top stressor in this country, has been for years? The top stressor. 
Stress kills. So you could even say the top killer if you want to. Finances, money. But of all the countries around the world, America has more stuff than just about any. You go to a third world country, kids are playing with the wheels, they made out of trash and all the rest, and they're not concerned, they don't have a stress in the world, they're having fun, they have a smile on their face. We could look at them and we could say, where's all your stuff? Here's another verse, Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Pastor Hyman showed me this one. It's a beautiful verse. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't want poverty and I don't want riches, Lord. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. There are problems on both sides. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. Lord, I don't want to be in need. I don't want to be over the top. I want to be right where you want me to be. That's it. Here's another one. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Isaiah 26, verse 3. How do I find perfect peace in this world that's filled with financial stress? How do I find it? Well, I keep my mind on the almighty dollar. No, you keep your mind on the almighty God. That's how you find perfect peace. Because I've stayed my mind on thee to supply all I need and just what I need to give me perfect peace. So some of you may be scratching your head and be saying, so does that mean I'm supposed to just give everything away? Is it wrong to have money? Is it wrong to save, to prepare for the future? Well, there's a couple of verses on that too. Here's one in Proverbs 6, 6 to 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Forgive me, it's not my words, it's in scripture. Go to the ants, you sluggard, and consider her ways, and be wise. Which having no captain or overseer or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Why are we wise when we contemplate the ants? What can the ants teach us? That it's good to prepare. It's good to plan ahead. It's good to work hard, to do our best. Joseph was told to save up in the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. It's God's idea. It's a good idea. Another one, Proverbs 21.20, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. The New David translation says, puts it on their credit card. No, the wise plan ahead. They store up. That's a part of being a good steward, by the way. It's not just the 10%. All of it is God's. How we spend all of it, we're accountable for. Because it's God's money. The problem is when we place our trust in our preparations rather than in God. That's the problem. But some Christians seem to think that we need to give everything away, and the line they use is, God will provide. 
Well, friends, I believe that God will provide. I believe in that line. But that doesn't mean I can just be lazy and slough off and do nothing and just sit back and say, where are the ravens, God? You said you were going to provide. Six days thou shalt what? Work and do all thy labor. You have to put your best into this. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own or his family, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's pretty strong talk. So we're supposed to provide for our family. Here's another one here in Last Day Events, page 76. Christ declared that when he comes, some of his waiting people will be engaged in business transactions. Some will be sowing in the fields, others reaping and gathering in the harvest, and others grinding at the mill. It is not God's will that his elect shall abandon life's duties and responsibilities and give themselves up to idle contemplation, living in a religious dream. God is defined as busy, at work, doing what he has called and enabled us to do. And when we're doing that and we find ourselves in a rough situation, we can use those resources. And that's one of the ways I believe God provides. But it's not the only way. So if you're trusting in that big bank account, first and foremost, you could have a problem. But I can't just be lazy either. Luke 19, 13 supports this. In the parable of the talents, Jesus said, do business till I come. Stay busy. And those that have managed the money well, what does Jesus say? Well done, good and faithful servant. It's important how we manage what he's given to us. That commendation is only given to those who manage God's resources well. Because it's not just about the tithe, but about all, because it all belongs to God. And we're accountable in how we manage it. So yes, keep working. Yes, keep saving. Yes, keep providing for your family. Keep being responsible with what God has blessed you with. But don't worry. Don't fret. But rather, store your treasure in heaven. Lord, I don't know if we need this much on hand. How much can I give? Well, just give a, a small amount. What if God puts it on your heart to give a big amount? Well, I don't want to waste that much on the church. Oh, really? Well, the, trust, the church isn't perfect, and there's some issues in the church, and I don't like this person, I don't like that person. You're not giving to those people. You're giving it to the Lord. It's your act of worship. I believe the biggest problem comes when we don't believe a verse we've already read this morning. And that's Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money or wealth. We think, well, I'm exempt from that rule. I can handle it. I can love God and money. I can love God and have a big shoe collection. I can love God and have the, the nicest of everything. Have all my stuff and still love God supremely. I can take it. I can handle it. I'm an exception to the rule. Like the people I saw this week on the news, Hurricane Matthew, 
Sir, why aren't you evacuating? This guy looked like he was living right on the beach. There's a water right there out of his beautiful windows. It's very dangerous for you to stay here. Why are you not evacuating? Because somebody has to look after my stuff. That's what he said, literally. I have to protect my stuff. Human life, stuff. Sounds a lot like eternal life, stuff. And the Bible's riddled with examples of people who thought the same thing. I can handle it. I can do both. Do you remember Abraham and Lot? Two brothers, two very different approaches to stuff. You can read about it in Genesis 13. Their respective clans and herds are getting too big. And all of this country, all of this land is Abraham's. Lot is just along for the ride. But Abraham gives Lot a choice because there's arguing, there's bickering. We don't want that. So you go one way and I'll go the other. Choose which way you want to go. What should Lot have said? Brother, all this is yours. You choose. And I'll go the other way. But Lot looks. He sees this beautiful land over here. And the plains are are just gorgeous. It's well watered. Lot says, I'm going to go that way. And we read about it. In Genesis 13, 12. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. Sodom, the center of wealth and pleasures and entertainment, the city life. Later in Genesis 14, Abraham gets word that Lot has been taken captive, and so he rounds up his men. Abraham rounds up his own men. He's big enough. He has his own army, 300-some men. And he goes and he delivers his brother. And all the spoil is offered to, I'm saying Abraham, it's actually Abram still at this point. But he refuses to take anything. It says there in the text in chapter 14, not even a thread or a sandal strap. I'm not going to take any of it. Abram versus Lot. I imagine his wife wasn't there when he refused it all, by the way. Not that his wife was a greedy person, but I can just hear her saying, but Abraham, we live in a tent. While Lot was seeking to live the high life of luxury and entertainment. And we're told why Abram lived in a tent. In Hebrews 11, We read, by faith Abraham dwelled in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He lived in a tent because his home was in heaven. Why am I going to waste my resources down here when there's something much bigger and better to invest in? He was thinking about the line, not the dot. But you know how the story ends, Genesis 19, 15. An angel urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife, your two daughters, who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. But it says in verse 16, Lot lingered. He lingered. You know what it means to linger? It's where your voice goes like this. Honey, should we go? Mm. He lingered. 
And you also know this part of the story. His wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Yet I find this very disturbing. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 161, it says, If Lot himself had, made, had manifested no hesitancy to obey the angel's warning, if he hadn't lingered, is what she's saying, but had earnestly fled toward the mountains without one word of pleading or remonstrance, his wife also would have made her escape. Isn't that sad? But he lingered. He whined. He faltered. He questioned. He doubted. And it cost him. I imagine Lot said, I can handle it. I can do both. I can be faithful to God. And I can be faithful to my money too. 1 Timothy 6, 8-10. to There's so many verses. I could just fill this whole sermon with verses. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be, what's the word? Content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say money itself is all evil. You can give money to wonderful things and store treasure in heaven. You can give back to God what was his in the first place. No, it's the love of money that's evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Hollywood is littered with people that have pierced themselves with their own sorrows. I was also looking at a study this week. Those that have won the lottery versus those that have been in a tragic car accident or some other accident and have become paralyzed. How many get more joy out of normal activities after those two events? Those that are paralyzed. If I could just win the lottery, it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Because you can't handle it. You can't do both. Yet as many people as we see, as much carnage as there is along this path, we just say, no, I'm different, I'm different, I can do it. You can't. You can't. Do you remember the story of Balaam? Prophet of God turned false prophet. There's a lot there. I'm going to have to get into that another time. I'm itching to do that. But he thought he could both serve God and get rich at the same time. And if you read the story of Balaam, he loses his life and his salvation. It's a sad story. And the dot ends right there, when he could have had eternity. Do you remember Judas, who thought he could follow God as close as a disciple, but also have wealth? To daily be in the presence of God, but steal from the treasury for his own gain. To be in the church on Sabbath, but enjoy the world on Saturday night. That's Judas. And in Matthew, oh, this is fun. 26, verse 15. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, that's enough. That'll work. I'm in. 30 pieces of silver. That's about 120 days wages. 
You can slice it a bunch of ways. Four months pay, one-third of your yearly salary. At minimum wage, that's about $7,000, but I suppose it could be $20,000 or more. Friends, what's your soul worth? Mm, $20,000. That'll work. He thought he could do both. He thought he could profit, but forced Jesus' hand. He focused on the dot and not the line. And we read these sad verses. Chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 3, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they've said, what's that to us? You see to it, that's your problem. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed and went and hanged himself. My friends, you can't serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or be loyal to one and despise the other. Because what rules them and how they're ruled are completely opposites. You can't serve both God and money. You can't have it both ways. Yet the devil keeps spinning the same lie. Keeps dangling the carrot because it seems to work. It worked for Lot. It worked for Balaam. It worked for Judas and a host of others we could look at. And all too often, it works for you and it works for me. If you want to be happy, to be content, live the good life. You need money, you need houses, you need property, you need cars, you need boats. You need, you need, you need, you need stuff. Friends, if you want to be happy and content and live the good life, you need Jesus. Some of you may know the story of Tom Moynihan, he bought a little pizza store in Detroit. He called it Dominic's. Bought it in 1960. He didn't have enough money. They took out a small loan, and I think they bought the whole place for 600 bucks or something. Went in with his brother to pull everything together. And after a year or so, his brother wanted out. This is the, the delivery car that they use for Dominic's Pizza. But his brother wanted out. He says, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go do something else. And so his portion of the business was to take the VW Volkswagen. Pretty good trade. So his brother Tom continued to work. By 1965, he'd purchased two other pizzerias. So now he was up to three in the Detroit area. And he wanted to have, give them all the same name, but they wouldn't let him keep the Dominics. So he changed the name. You know what it is? Domino's. His first three stores, that's the one, two, three you see on the pizza box in Detroit. To make a long story short, Domino's became the largest home delivery pizza business in the world. Tom, as a result, became a very wealthy man, as you can imagine. For a time, he owned the Detroit Tigers baseball team. But Getting to a game was a little bit stressful. He had to fight traffic 
So he got one of these to help him get there on time. He also had a really big car collection, some beautiful cars. He filled a warehouse with it. One of his favorites was his 1931 Bugatti Royale. When he bought this car, there was only 11 that ran on the planet. But for 11 million, it was his. He had a big yacht that he rarely went out on. But one day he started thinking, if I continue down this road that I'm on, will it take me where I want to go? So he decided to take one of his business friends' invitation and be part of an early morning Bible study. Once a week, they'd get together, they'd study the Bible, they'd have prayer. And so once it was his turn to lead out in this Bible study, and he read in Mark chapter 8 to his friends that were there, and you know the verse as well, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He said, when I read that, I thought Jesus put that in the Bible just for me. So he says, I started to, li to liquidate assets, to give money to Christian charities. He says, when I first started doing this, my wife wondered if I had lost my mind. But now we both realize that we're both in this together, and there is nothing more important than eternal life, Period. So he sold his Detroit Tigers, his baseball team. He sold his car collection. He sold his yacht. He sold his helicopter. Most of the money went to Christian charities. And in 1998, he sold Domino's Pizza for $1 billion in cash. And now he's in full-time ministry work. He says, I've never been happier in all of my life. Friends, do you want to be happy? Give Jesus your all. Let him manage your finances. Sacrifice your means and your pleasures. Put Jesus first in all areas of your life. And I believe you will be happier and have greater peace than you've ever had before. Dear Heavenly Father, you don't need our money. You have a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything in this world is yours. But you want our hearts. So every time we pull out that checkbook, every time we make a contribution, it's reminding us who's truly in control. Lord, may it not be us, but may it be you. We want to return the tithe. We want to give you offerings. We want to entrust you with everything that we have. May you be the chief financial officer of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.